Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see everyone who's here with us today to join us in worship. And now in our study, there's quite a few faces in here that I have not yet met. And I'm looking forward to meeting you later. We want to welcome you to worship with us at any chance you have the opportunity. And it's good to see some familiar faces as well. Uh, welcome to everyone who's here today. If you have not been with us, we've been studying through the book of Ephesians. At least when I'm uh, giving the study, I chose to study through each, uh, each chapter of this book. And we've walked through Hebrews, Galatians, and we're working through Ephesians right now, and we're in the fourth chapter. And just a little insight as to why I, I do this, and I think anyone who teaches the Bible wants to do uh, an expository study, is we want to share the knowledge of the Word of God. That's, that's the goal of every teacher. But specifically with expository study, we want everyone to see and to understand that you could do this too. You can pick up the Bible, you can read through and, and study through it for yourself, for somebody else, maybe someone in your life. Um, whenever a Bible study is done, we try to remember, hey, the reason we're doing this is so that you can go and teach other people too. What, this, this should not end with your knowledge of the Word. This should only be an extension, uh, an extension of, of the Word through you as you go forward. So I hope you get the sense. And you might say, you know, sometimes people say things like, uh, well, I don't have the things to say that so-and-so says about a passage. Okay, well, I have this, I, I could use that same excuse. That I don't have the same things to say about a passage that Frank says, or that another preacher says. So none of us have an excuse. Because there might be some things we say today that you might think, oh, I never thought about that before. But it doesn't make me a genius. It just makes it being perspective and, and someone else reading the word and noticing something different. That's our goal today, is that we will study and learn God's word, and that you will see uh, that maybe you can pick up some studies of your own. So Ephesians chapter 4, I've titled this A Worthy Walk. Just to pick up, reminding ourselves, in this book there are two sections basically. The first section is three chapters that we just finished. And that was all about what our blessings are in Christ. It's doctrine. It's teaching about the place you have. And if you don't understand the place you have, the writer, Paul, wants you to be motivated into action by the place that you hold in the kingdom of God and in eternity itself. And so we've already talked about where we've been raised to, the glorious inheritance that God has chosen us for. And now the second section that we're starting is chapters 4 through 6, where he's going to say, okay, now what do you do with all that information? What do you do with that? And it's going to be a call to walk worthy of this great calling. And, uh, and this section is going to be generally, we're going to talk about preserving the unity of the spirit with the proper attitudes. We're going to talk about edifying the body of Christ by the grace given to us. And we may not even make it through that whole section today. Probably only going to cover about half of this chapter. But I, in the same flow of thought, he's going to talk about a call to walk in purity. So to walk in pure life. What that means for a Christian because we don't just get called to a heavenly calling and then just say, well, that doesn't mean anything for me personally. It's just what I get to have. No, it's, it's a walk where we make sacrifice for the glory of God and ultimately for our benefit as well. And it's a call to walk not as the other Gentiles. But like I said, I don't think we'll get through all that today. So this walk that we're going to talk about was led up to with chapter 3. So let's get a, just a couple quick verses to remind ourselves of chapter 3. Uh, where, Paul was, where Paul was writing. He says that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height. 
He wants these, these Ephesian brethren to know that you have to be grounded in love. And the love of Christ, before you can even start to comprehend and to be grounded enough that you will stay when things get hard. That you will stay when your own faith is challenged, when people around you challenge you. That you will grow and be rooted in love so that you can comprehend the blessings that are for us. I'll be honest with you. I have a hard time comprehending the blessings and the, the riches that are promised that were kind of talked about Ephesians in Ephesians 1 through 3. And the solution to that is we have to be rooted in love. Because otherwise we're not going to have the grounding to really appreciate and and accept and be motivated by the love and the, the goodness that God has towards us. Verse 19, he said, To know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. There's part of it that just goes beyond our understanding. We can't fathom it completely. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him, he said in response to all of that, Now to him who's able to do exceedingly abundantly, Above all that we ask or think, that's a lot of redundancy, beyond anything you could ever imagine, according to the power that works in us, even still to this day, to him be glory in the church, by Christ Jesus, to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So Paul pronounces this blessing, and this thanks, and this glory to God, and that's going to lead us into, okay, now what? It doesn't end there. Verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 4 says this, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Paul's already reminded us that he's in prison writing these letters. And he's a prisoner because he's serving the needs of the brethren preaching the gospel. And he's, a, he's serving the needs uh, of the Lord's church. So he's a prisoner of the Lord. And he urges them to come alongside him in his service to the Lord by saying, I urge you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So I'm going to bounce back and forth between the ESV and the New King James this morning. I'll try to make it clear when I do that. But this is our call. Throughout the Bible, when we read the word walk, it's a manner of life. Obviously, he's not saying you should have a certain cadence in your step, a certain swagger or a, or a hitch in your walk. He's saying you should have a manner of your life that is worthy of this great calling. Now, if this was me writing a book about... Or a story. You know, people write all kinds of stories and fantasy about a great calling. And if you have a great mission, if I were to write something like this, I would think, you know, of a, of a lauded, or if I, have the, if I have the lauded audience of going before the throne of a, of a creator who has called me to an inheritance that is beyond any riches this world has to offer, that, this, that when the Bible describes the riches of this world, it's like it's, it's trash. It's going to be gone. It's going to burn up. It's, it's worthless. And instead of that, we're being called to a heavenly calling where we are not only members of the heavenly kingdom, but where we are sons and daughters, direct heirs of the throne. And I think about, man, okay, well, if I'm going to walk in a worthy manner, I, here we go. I'm going to do something awesome. I'm going to do an incredible feat of physicality. I'm going to do an incredible feat of maybe intellectual strength. Maybe, you know, if you hear of all these stories and, and these great movies where people do it in a fantastic work, it's always some feat of physicality, mentality, or uh, all, these, all these great things you could do. The last thing I would expect for him to say is what he's going to say next. Because the things he's going to tell us to do to walk worthy are not at all 
the things that I just described to you. Feats of intellectual, emotional, or physical prowess. But we are to walk worthy of this calling. And it's a dishonor if we don't. But because of all the factors that led up to this, we should want to. And the first question is, do you want to walk worthy of God's calling? Do you personally, not the person sitting next to you, do you want to be walking in a way that's worthy of a heavenly calling? doesn't mean you deserve it. That's not the point. But we have a manner that lives in a way that honors the call and honors what God has asked of us. Because if you do, you're going to be surprised at the answer. He says to have a walk that is worthy, he first the first thing we have to do to have a walk that is worthy is to walk with all humility. And that goes against everything on the list I just said. He says if you want to walk in a worthy in a manner that would that would give the honor of a creator in this in this magnificent story with this lauded audience of the creator of this universe, he says turn around. He's going to talk about qualities and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another that are among ourselves. He's, he's got this picture of someone coming before a God who wants to live worthy of a heavenly calling. And he says, turn around. Turn around to the people that are around you. You know, sometimes we're like, you know, I'm, I'm too busy for you. I'm trying to be living worthy of God. God doesn't allow that. Instead, God wants us to turn around to one another and first walk in humility. It all starts with humility. No service we could perform, no word we could say, no task we would engage in would be worthy of this heavenly calling without our proper perspective on ourselves. I don't have to explain that to you. For everyone involved in a situation, it's better if we are humble. And it's bad if we're not. I don't care what I were to do for you. If I did something for you that was magnificent, and I walked around with a chip on my shoulder, I'm like, yeah, I did that. Or after I got done doing inter, interacting with you, you would feel dirty if I were to be prideful about that. Nobody wants someone who's prideful helping them. Nobody wants who's prideful working alongside them. It's not good for anyone if we have pride in our hearts. We know what it feels like when people have pride, when we, when we ourselves have pride in our work. It won't be good for ourselves in reality because pride is a weak way to live. If I live with a walk in pride, I don't have God's strength in me. I'm walking by my own strength. And it's only with humility and putting myself aside and elevating God. When I decrease, then God can increase. Then my work can be good for myself. That's not the point, but it can be good. It can be a benefit to my own life. It can be a benefit to the lives of others. And it becomes... A worthwhile uh, use of our time and our energy. When we decrease and give God the rightful place on his throne and we serve others more than we look to serve ourselves. So why don't we? Why don't we walk with humility naturally? And I think, personally, I think it's because we have a desire for significance. We want to be significant. We want to matter. And when we try to take that, it's because we don't feel like we do. The reality is our significance that we crave does not come from ourselves. We can't get it through ourselves and it can't come through ourselves. It can only come through God. Our sacrifice or our service to God 
is only worthwhile and we will only receive significance if it's through him and for him in our work. Significance does not come through us. He says next, gentleness. To walk in a, worthy, in a manner that is worthy of a heavenly calling, he says to be gentle. And I, I say this all, almost all the time, and I think people reiterate this all the time. Gentleness is not weakness. Gentleness is not weakness. Charlie, I would say, is weak. Everyone would say a baby is weak by all standards. Even if he's strong for a baby, he does things that I don't think a baby should be able to do. He is weak by all intents and purposes. But I would never describe him as gentle. And if you've held him for very long, you know that's true. He'll claw your eyes. But he's not gentle. So when we see gentleness, we don't think weakness because that's not how you describe somebody who is weak. You don't describe them as gentle. We think of an adult. Well, what's, what's unique about an adult that a kid is not? They're old enough to have the capacity and strength to harm someone. If you have the capacity and strength to do harm, but you control it, that's strength. And that's the definition of gentleness. Gentleness is strength controlled. Okay, why don't we have, have gentleness? And I think it's probably because in different places in the Bible, it gives hint that we try to take control for ourselves of the situation. We don't think that God is in control, either in the short term or the long term. And so we feel like we have to lash out. You know, so-and-so will not unless I, or I just get fed up with someone else's actions to the point that I have to be the one who handles them. When in reality, they're the only person that control themselves. And I'm not going to be able to fix them with my lashing out at someone. We're not gentle when our perspective is not where it should be. When we are of the right mindset, we will know that the only way to change somebody is to show love. Sure, we have to set boundaries, but we must show love in gentleness to walk a manner that is worthy of the calling. Jesus was gentle. Jesus was one who children felt safe enough to go around and to come and sit on his lap. That was a gentle man. And yet when he stood in front of a crowd that's coming to get him, he said his name and they fell on the ground. He was the commander of angel armies that could wipe out the world with just a couple of them. And yet he is described as gentle. We ought to be gentle to walk worthy of the calling. He says with patience. Patience in this, in this whole train of thought is the last thing I would think to Live up to a heavenly calling, you might say. I would not think patience would be at the front, and yet it is. He says, bearing with one another in love. In order to live in a worthy manner, we have to turn around to others. We have to show humility, gentleness, and patience. And we have to be there for one another. And bear with one another. Now, if this is people you love to be around, and you love to... Uh, interact with and, and you just enjoy that with, that's good. But it wouldn't be a command probably if it was easy. And we know this cannot be easy all the time. That's why it's a command. We are to bear with one another even when it is not natural. To do so when it doesn't feel like we should. Even when people are difficult. Through conflicts and disagreements, we stay there. This is basically a call to stay. He's going to get into unity and the bond we have and the oneness we have. And all that is broken up if people don't just learn to stay. 
Don't get out of the situation you're in because you don't like where you're at, because you don't like the, the person next to you, or you don't like this. He says, stay. Stay with them and be with them. Why does that matter? Because we know people don't really behave in a difficult way most of the time because of the situation with you. It's a lot of times because of the difficulties in their own life. They're dealing with something on their own end, their own life's turmoil, their own life's stresses. And sometimes they're difficult with you because it's just coming out at that moment. And it takes a, rem a reminder to stay, to bear with one another, whether they're easy or difficult. And he says to do it in love. I think level one is just being there for people. Level two is being there for people, even when they're difficult. But I think level three is the, that's where it gets really hard, is being there for one another, even when it's difficult, in love. I need to work on that. Because I can be there for someone and have kind of a tight lip about it. But it takes strength. It takes self-control. It takes practice to do this with love for someone. Bearing with one another in love. If we really want to live up to the call that we've read about in the first three chapters that is beyond what we could ever deserve, he says, look around to one another and be there for each other. In verse 3, he says, to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. How do we do this? How do we maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace with eagerness? The point here is we cannot passively maintain unity in the body of Christ or with one another. It has to be with eagerness. It has to be with an intense and with a focused effort to do so. Because the natural state will be disbanding. Maybe we'll come together for a while and then disband once uh, things get difficult. And you notice he doesn't say create unity necessarily. I mean... Not, not that it would be bad if he did, but he said maintain the unity. It's a unity of the Spirit. I think that's important because the unity that is in the body of Christ is not ours to begin with. We did not create it, and therefore we should be ashamed if we do anything to disband it. God has intended for us to be unified. It is the unity of the Spirit. It is a unity set forth by God Himself. And if we are eager we should do our best to maintain that. Shame on us if we break up something that he's going to talk about in a minute. is one. It's powerful when we are together and unified and collectively on the same page and with the same goals. He has designed a beautiful unity to exist in the faith for the enjoyment of his people. Scripture says how blessed it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's for our enjoyment and for his glory. He set this in motion. Shame on me if I uh, let God down by not maintaining that. You might say God lit the fire of unity and is our God to do our part in preserving that fire of unity. The spirit here is important because it is only by the spirit and the spirit's work in this world by giving us the word of God that we have unity. Because in reality... We would have no common ground and we would very likely have every reason to not be unified unless we all had one common source of our hope, source of our knowledge and our 
guidance. The Spirit gave us the Word of God. It is inspired by the Spirit. We, we, cannot, um, we cannot have unity without God's Word. How else can we procure such an uncommon peace? Surely not from our own ways. Only through unity around God's Word and through God's Word may we have peace. In the bond of peace. Many people have said that Jesus did not say blessed are the peace enjoyers, but the peace makers, and here the peace maintainers. Those who endeavor or are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Verse 4. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called, and one hope of your calling. Back in the New King, New King James here. He's going to give us a list of seven core principles of unity. I think seven, you know, you hear that number seven. That's the number of completeness. That's the, the number that God uses often in the Bible. And there are seven of them. The first one is that there is one body. It is us, as the church, who are to be the one body. If we break that up, we are disbanding a beautiful picture. When we commune, we are one body. And we share in Christ's sacrifice together. That also means that we are to work things out. We are one body. There's not another option. Like, oh, just go pick somewhere else where you'd rather be. There's one body. And if we don't want to be a part of that, how is heaven going to be like? If we don't want to be with all the people who are there in heaven with us. Work things out. We are the one body of Christ. May we not split that up. He says one spirit. Like we just said, the spirit gave us the word of God. It is our one source of guidance, unity, and common support. Without it, we have no ground for unity. He says one hope of your calling. You know, we really only have one hope. You could get a sample from people of all walks of life. And even in this room, you know, what do you hope in? What do you find hope in for your life? And people might say all kinds of things. They might see maybe their football team is, is going to do it all this year. They're going to win it all. They might say, um, I've had an injury for a long time. I'm really hoping, I'm really hopeful that I can live a life free of pain. That maybe I can have a procedure that I can recover from and get well. I'm hopeful uh, maybe for my career plans. I'm looking forward to where my career might take me. You get a hundred different answers if you ask a hundred different people what they're hoping in. And that's, that's true. And, and we do sometimes lose sight of what really matters. And, I, and it's definitely not wrong to have things you're looking forward to in life. But we can all agree in this room. There is only one hope that matters. As we were around my grandma's bedside last weekend, she was just constantly repeating, none of this matters. And she, you know, there's regrets there that things that she spent too much time on, spent too much money on, that she just wished it didn't matter. I wasted all that on, on things that didn't matter. No, I'm not going to say she wasted it. But when people are on their deathbed, there's a clarity that comes over them of what really matters. We all in this room know what really matters. She said that she's been preparing for a trip her whole life, and she wanted us to meet her there. We only have one hope. If we all in this room were collectively on our deathbed right now, there'd be no question, there'd be no 
you know, I got to sort out that first and then this. No, it would be, there's only one thing that matters. She said all is vanity and vexation like the, like the, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes says. All of it is meaningless. There is only one hope. There's only one thing we can look forward to truly in this life. Because when it's all said and done, we can't take anything with us. It's not going to matter how much we accomplished our own accolades, any of that. May we live, do our best to live in that headspace, because we get distracted. But may we remember that we have one hope, and thus we should be more unified in our intentions. That we are one body, and there's one spirit, and we have one hope in our calling. There is one Lord. We only have one leader. You know, when, when countries and groups go through cycles where they're unsuccessful, whether it's a country collapses, a lot of times it's the leadership. Either people question the leadership, maybe the leadership is weak, or you know, there's an insurrection, rebellion. We don't have to worry about that. And I'm so glad we don't because there doesn't need to be a big, um, big issue about who we turn to, about who we are led by. We are led by one good and great leader who sacrificed for us, who was complete in every way, who didn't even sin. There's no criticism of him. Teams crumble when they fight about their leader, and we have a leader that can be trusted with everything we have, including our eternity. We have one Lord, one leader. There's one faith. In God's plan, in God's guidance, in God's saving, there is only one faith. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He says, There is one baptism. You know, whenever I heard this either referenced or taught from, it seemed like every time I heard this, uh, or I'm sure there's people who taught who went more in depth, but it was often in reference to, you should baptize by immersion, and that's the only way. Look, it says here, one baptism, and they, that's all they said and moved on. But I think this, that's just to take such a, a thin layer. That's like picking the pepperonis off of a piece of pizza and just eating the pepperonis. This is so much deeper. He's, he's providing core principles of Christian unity. There is only one baptism. Yes, that means immersion. And because there's meaning behind that. What we should think about when we read this is beyond just that. We should think there is only one obeying of the gospel. There is only one contacting of the blood of Jesus in immersion. There is only one way that we are to die and be risen from the dead spiritually. It's, you can't go to the, the Enlightenment uh, discount store and pick up another version of that. There's only one way. There's only one way to be fully submitted to God's way. To submit yourself and be buried and die to our old life and give up everything into the hands of a loving and faithful God who raised Jesus from the dead and so will raise us from the dead too. Spiritually, and in eternity. There's only one of those. There's only one submission and saving act of being plunged and brought back into life. There's only one of those. And there is only one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The seventh of the uh, principles of unity, he says, there is one God and Father of all. There is no question. 
And really, we don't disagree on that. Sometimes we need to dwell more on that. Sometimes we need to remember. Because it says he is overall. Overall is a sign of dominance. But it also says he is through all. That's a sign of empowerment. He's empowering everything to exist the way it does. He's dominant over it. He empowers everything that we see around us and makes everything work. And he is also in all. He's not just a domineering father. He's an involved father. He's over it all. He's making it all work. And he's involved in it all. Those are the seven uh, kind of core principles of unity he gives here. Verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. This was kind of a, my mind didn't really understand what this was saying at first. It was kind of hard to, to, to get what this principle in orange was saying. But it's according to the measure of Christ's gift. And the best I could, way I could understand it and the way it made sense was grace was given to us according to a certain measure. And for all of us, I can assume for you, for me, this grace was immeasurable. I had so much sin in my life and sin that would, that would have sent me to an eternal hell. So to save me from that, it took an immeasurable measure of grace. And to each one of us, that measure, the same measure, an immeasurable grace was given to us in the form of a gift that we can thank God for. Verse 8, therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. That's the way the New King James words. We're going to look at the ESV in just a minute. But I guess the, the way we can simply read this is he led captivity captive. He took the thing, captivity itself, he took the bondage, he took entanglement and, and imprisonment itself, and he turned that captive. He captured the trap, basically, and gave gifts to men. Now, that's, that's completely true. We know that Jesus crushed death in the grave. There is no th nothing that can hold us. But uh, the ESV, from what I understand, is probably a better, better like literal, the way it was uh, translated, a, a better translation of the phrase. It says, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. So this phrase, a host of captives, was like someone who came back from war. They had won, and they would have like a train of of uh, captives behind them. They, he led a bunch of captives back to his own country. Well, with Jesus, it's not that he led prisoners. He led us who were prisoners free. And so both principles are true, that he took imprisonment and captivity, and he trapped that. And he took that away. He took its power away. But it's also true that he took you and I, who were prisoners, and he led us out of that darkness and out of that entanglement and the prisons of sin really carries the same meaning overall. And he gave gifts to men. When I think about captivity, though, I, there's a lot of different things that that means. And I, some of us were talking the other day, what does that mean, that captivity? And there's a lot of layers to that. The first one I think of is freedom from the captivity of the Old Testament law. And it was captivity, as we studied in Hebrews because and, and in Galatians, because it was conviction of your sin without a Savior yet. There was no new law and Savior yet to, to free us from that captivity to sin. So we're free from the Old Testament law. And as part of that, we're free from the need for self-righteousness. 
It proved that we cannot be righteous on our own. And we're free from the need for that to be the case. As I thought about captivity, though, I thought about we're free from the captivity of life's limitations. I've got my career set. I've got uh, pretty much as far as I think I'm going to go in my career. Now I'm just going to stay in it. And that's okay. Life's limitations can make some people feel like, I got to do something more. I got to do something next. I got to do this. I got to do that. But you're limited with time and money and, and energy and age. Life's limitations can, can be a problem for people, but we are free from captivity to that. It doesn't matter. Because my significance is not in myself. I'm, ca- I'm free from the captivity to my own sin. And as an extension of that from my own mind, when we get our own head and we get stuck in cycles of sin, that's captivity. That's bondage to sin. That's entrapment. And my own cycles that make my life miserable because of sin, I'm free from that. And praise God that he led me free. And he took that captivity away and the power that it had over my life. We're almost done here. Verse 9. Now this he ascended. When it said he ascended on high and led captivity captive. Now this he ascended. What does it mean? But that he has also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. And that's just basic logic. That For him to have ascended into heaven after it was all done, he had to first come down here. And there's several things that this phrase means. I think the primary meaning of this phrase uh, that he went to the lower parts is reference to Hades. So we know that when we die, we either go to one of two places. We go to Paradise, which is part of Hades, or Tartarus, which is the torments that we read about from the, uh, the rich man, where Lazarus was in Paradise and comforted, but the rich man, Lazarus, or the rich man was sent uh, to Tartarus, and there was a great gulf put between them. We learn about Jesus, who said, "This day you will be with me in Paradise." And he was talking to the thief on the cross. So I think primarily, or maybe first off, uh, he's talking about Hades and how he was in the lower parts of the earth. And from what I understand, that's what the Jews really thought of Hades as, is the lower parts. But secondarily, I think it could also mean the womb. And there's language throughout the Bible, like Psalm 139, where the psalmist says, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. So that lower parts, that depths of the earth, that could also be where Jesus was, uh, was ascended from. Because all this is true. It could also be the heart of the earth. Matthew 12 verse 40 refers to the grave as the heart of the earth. But it could also mean the earthly realm. Jesus being incarnated, he came down to earth itself. So all these things are true. It's all part of what Jesus descended to. He became a fetus and humbled himself in the form of a man on earth as an incarnated man. And he ended up going to the grave. He went even down as far as Hades, the realm of the dead. But the psalmist says, you will not leave my soul in Hades or Sheol. And he didn't stay there. But then he ascended. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And part of the reason I think it's okay to interpret all that way is because he said parts of the earth. 
There's many ways in which Jesus went from the lower parts of the earth. And it says that he, and I think that's okay because it magnifies the next part, he says, far above all the heavens. What does it mean, all the heavens? There's three different heavens in the Bible. There's the atmosphere, there's space, and there's the, the place of God where he dwells. In Genesis 1 verse 20, we learn the atmosphere, space is where the stars are. And Genesis 22 verse 17 uh, is where we find that. But then we also read of another heaven, the highest heaven, as 1 Kings 8 verse 27 puts it. And that's where Jesus went. Hebrews 9 verse 24 says, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And that's from the NASB. And he didn't just come back into heaven and, you know, he came back to his old company and he had to start from the bottom again. No, he came back into heaven and he was set at the right hand of God. First Peter 3 verse 22 says, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. He had all authority when he came back to be at the right hand of the father. That's the emphasis. He was above all the heavens and he bought, he went back to his rightful place. On the throne. Why did he do this? So he could come back into power and get back at everybody? No. He did it because he had to go back to his power so that he could continue to fill all things. In Hebrews 1 verse 3, we read that he upholds all things. In Colossians 1 verse 17, in him all things are held together, the ESV says. Jesus came back and rose from the dead and ascended to his place in authority because he has to hold all things together. He has all power and might. I don't think Jesus ever had a lapse in power, but I don't think it was an accident that the heavens or that the earth shook and the sun was darkened when Jesus was dying. As a message that you're killing the person who's holding all this together. He never lost power. Even through the grave, he never lost power, but he upholds all things. And he himself gave, well, we're going to hold off there. We're going to pause there. And we're going to pick that up next time. We're going to cover the second half of the chapter. But there's going to be things. He holds all things together on earth. But he also holds all things together in the body of Christ. And in the church that is built. And we're going to talk about that next time. Learning about what Jesus gave, him, gave to, our, to the body. And what he put in order for our betterment. Thank you for your attention today. I hope this has been beneficial for you as we consider how am I going to go forward? How am I going to read about the promises of a heavenly calling and just sit here in my comfortable chair and do nothing about it? We don't have to. We can live in a way that is worthy and it doesn't have to be some amazing feat that you can't do starting today. You can start today. If you've been added to the body of Christ, go on your way. If you're not, you can hear the word. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Repent of your past life and say, I'm going to turn to do God's way, just like we've talked today. Confessing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and there's no other way to be saved, and being baptized, that one baptism, into Jesus for the remission of our sins. And if you need some prayers of the brethren to make something right that you feel like has been public, or if you need the prayers of the church, please come forward while we stand and sing. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information, 
or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.